I'm Charlie Melcher, founder and director of The Future of Storytelling, and I'd like to welcome you back to the FOST podcast. Today, I'm joined by Felix Getka and Gayatri Paramishwaran, co-founders of Berlin-based immersive storytelling studio, Now Hear Media. Felix and Gayatri both started their careers in journalism, covering conflicts, wars, and humanitarian crises, but found that the traditional mediums available to them, such as print and video, were insufficient to convey the depth and humanity of the stories they wanted to tell. They were determined to have their audiences experience what they experienced and feel the emotional immediacy of witnessing something firsthand. This drive eventually led them to emerging technologies such as virtual and augmented reality. And in 2014, they founded Now Here to fully focus their efforts on immersive storytelling. Their work has been shown at the Venice Biennale, South by Southwest, the United Nations, amongst many others. Felix and Gayatri's newest VR project, Kusunda, takes viewers to Nepal, where they meet the last few speakers of a language on the brink of extinction and learn about the efforts being made to revive it. Kasunda recently won the Storyscapes Award, Tribeca Film Festival's highest honor for immersive work. I'm thrilled to welcome Felix and Gayatri to the FOSS podcast. Gayatri, Felix, it's such a delight to have you on the Future of Storytelling podcast. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. So I wanted to start by asking you about your backgrounds. You both come from journalism. Tell me what drew you to journalism and the kind of journalism that you did before you got into doing um, virtual reality work. So I grew up in India, in Bombay, and... um, my I studied journalism at uh, the University of Bombay in Milson College. And one of the things that I realized uh, studying journalism was that the media or the media landscape in general has gatekeepers and authorities or power structures that allow certain kinds of news and information to filter to audiences and reach audiences and reach mass audiences and some other kinds of information that doesn't reach as intended. And a lot of this information that doesn't reach audiences are things that directly influence democracy in a place like like India. And these unequal structures or inequality in news reporting or journalism is something that was... you know, that has influenced my career and the way I look at what are the issues and the topics we should be uh, looking at and speaking about, apart from talking about all the things that already dominate the media landscape. Yeah, so I think I was always interested in in storytelling, especially when it was kind of grounded in in reality. Starting out, I had, and I hope I still have, like uh, this idealistic idea of like giving a voice to people through through stories and also from from a more selfish perspective I think I was always very curious and um, working in documentaries and working in journalism is is like a great excuse to 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 get a an insight into other people's lives and 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 into stories and places and and access people that otherwise 
wouldn't be possible or, or, or would be even more um, difficult and, and be able to, to share that. So how did you then decide to move into virtual reality as a, as a medium to tell stories? We had made a career as journalists working in areas of conflict, remote areas and hostile environments. And whenever we came back, for instance, we reported on the war in Syria back in 2013. And when we came back to, to our, let's call it peaceful world without the conflict, it was very hard for us to transport our audiences or take our readers or viewers to the place where we had been and show them exactly what it was like. And when we started experimenting with virtual reality, we felt like, oh my God, we haven't had this medium and this kind of filled that gap that we had been facing in our career. People say that VR is, is a medium that gives a sense of presence if it's done well that you can actually feel much more a uh, sense of being there than, than others. Do you, do you feel that's true? Totally. We work a lot with photorealistic environments because we come from a background in nonfiction storytelling. So to harness this power of, of realistic and photorealistic environments into and render them into the VR headset is something that where we are placing ourselves in kind of a unique position as storytellers and as creators, the first thing, like 90% of our audiences or viewers say when they get out of the headset is that, oh, shit, I was there. Could you tell me a little bit about your first uh, VR project, Home After War? What was that? Home After War is a room-scale interactive virtual reality experience about uh, the dangers of improvised explosive devices in Iraq. We worked together with um, Oculus VR for Good and the Geneva International Center for Humanitarian Demining to create a VR experience that could raise awareness about the dangers of um, IEDs in a post-conflict or still a conflict region like Iraq and use the virtual reality experience also as a tool for advocacy. So in the experience, you are in Fallujah in Iraq in, in a time after ISIS. This is also a nonfiction documentary experience where you are invited to um, enter a home in Fallujah and Ahmed, the man who lives there, uh, shows you around his home. You can walk in his home and he's welcoming you there and he tells you his story which is a tragic story. He lost two of, two, two of his sons to um, an explosion uh, due to an improvised explosive device in, uh, in their neighborhood. There are these unprecedented challenges of these new kind of devices that have seen an upsurge after the war or with, during the war with ISIS in the form of booby traps. So people might return home and open the gate to enter, the main gate to enter their homes, and that might trigger an explosion or they might turn on uh, an electricity switch and that could trigger an explosion. And there's this constant uncertainty of being in your home, which should be a safe place, but it's actually not. Um, so we made the home, we captured the home using a technique called photogrammetry 
which involves taking many, many photos of the space and then reconstructing them in a software that produces a photorealistic 3D model, uh, which when rendered using virtual reality, gives you a sense of being in that space and walking in that space. I'm imagining that because you're creating this sense of presence, that you're recreating these places, that they're much more emotionally powerful for people than, say, watching it as a flat film or certainly reading about it, and therefore must be better for advocacy. Do you, did you find that in terms of the responses you, you get? Yes, and in this case, for us, what was especially telling of, of the power of VR is that we... We were able to, so we, we were very lucky to show the piece at a lot of festivals, but I think for us from, from an advocacy or, or an impact point of view, the most important screening was at the United Nations, and we showed it at the uh, UN um, in Geneva as well as in New York. And we showed it at conferences where um, the, the people who go there know much more about the topic than we do. They're, they're really, really deep in, into the numbers. They, they really understand understand the topic very well. The experts. They're, they're really the experts. So we were kind of wondering, like, can, can we even offer something? And what was really, really telling for us is that, that they were really blown away to be able to spatially experience this and to move around the house and, and to... Yeah, to feel like a guest in someone's house makes it much much more real, and to to get a feeling for this uh, ambiguity of like coming home, which for most of us is, is like a feeling of of safety and security, and and for many people in in Iraq, it's it's that paired with the fear that something might happen. Do you have any issue um, having been journalists? where the role of a journalist is to report, say, in an unbiased way, and now having doing this work that's more advocacy, where you clearly have an opinion, you, you are uh, manipulating with the best of intentions, but you're trying to lead your, your audience to a certain conclusion, to feel certain things. I mean, it's, it's very different than, I think, objectivity with the subject, which comes from you know, independent reporting or, or, or objective reporting. Can you talk a little bit about that, that tension between journalism and advocacy? It's a bit controversial, but I think there is no objectivity generally in any kind of storytelling. I think what helps achieve more objectivity is kind of knowing your position and knowing the bias that you have and being transparent and being open and laying it out for your audiences to know, you know, what's you, knowing your stand on the subject and then the story. And then they may then decide for themselves if they want to see the side that you're showing them or they want to go and look at another version of the subject or another take, have, have another take on it. So I really think that, I mean, you can see this in everyday life, even that when two human beings look at the same picture, they might look at different aspects of that photo. And this is not even the kind of deep biases that we are talking about. And all of us have these biases within us. There are prejudices that are also our experiences that lead us to look at the world in a certain way. I'm not wedded to the title of being a journalist. And I think that's that's something we also realized as soon as we entered the space of documentary, 
art. You know, we are also artists. We can have our opinions. And as documentary makers, we are documenting something in our time from a certain perspective, from our perspective and putting it out there in the world. And what matters really for us is working in collaboration with people whose stories we are responsible to bring to the world. Did you find that you had some impact with Home After War? Did you feel like it had, uh, at the UN, did it lead to some change? Did your ability to make people feel what it was like to walk into a home that could blow up around you end up influencing policy or, or the debate around that or, or make a difference? Well, obviously, it's always very difficult to, um, to say how much uh, change has been contributed by one VR experiences. We know that there was more money pledged at that conference that was actually about um, allocating money and resources to demining in Iraq. And, and I think just the reaction of the people showed us that it, that it did have an impact. So, for example, the uh, Iraqi ambassador to the United Nations, he kind of became our un unofficial spokesperson and was really getting like other diplomats to see this and said like, oh, come, you should see, this is, this is Iraq, you, you, should, you should see it. I mean, I think about the impact that a single image can have in influencing the world. I remember watching, uh, not watching, it's funny, I almost say, I say it watching, but actually looking at the cover of a photograph on the, on the New York Times of a Palestinian boy and his father, and you just looked at the picture and I started to cry. Like I, it was so, I had a son, I mean, I have a son who was not far from that age, and all of a sudden I'm in tears in front of the morning paper. And that's a single image, you know? And I think about the uh, scale at which you're upping the ante when, if, imagine if I were actually in a VR experience on that street with that father and that son while those bullets were flying. But of course, the opposite side of this coin is how many people get to experience it. Tens of millions got to see the cover of that New York Times. How do you deal with the, the throughput problem for a, a powerful VR experience? So I, I first would like to say something to you, to, to your first point. And I do think it's really important to mention that because, because we are so powerful, I feel like we also have a responsibility because I think in, in, in some ways it's, especially with, with stories from, from areas of conflict and so on, you can really traumatize people or re-traumatize people that, that have experienced trauma. And um, I think the idea should not be to have the most shocking experience or, or impact, but, but enough like, of, of a shock in order to... like comprehend something maybe you you wouldn't otherwise so i think it's really like it's, it's a thin line and finding that balance is 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 really important and also like warning have, having trigger warnings and and those those kind of things i think were were really important especially with this home after war yeah but to, to your second point of course vr is a very um exclusive medium and that is something that bothers us very much <laughs> What helped us in this is really to focus on specific target audiences that otherwise wouldn't see something like this, so more like a qualitative rather than a quantitative approach, in the sense that I, I don't necessarily think we would have gotten as many UN diplomats to sit together to see a film. 
I think it was also the novelty of like a VR experience and an installation and so on to go there and see it. So um, I think that that is one of our ways of dealing with that. It's also really interesting what so far we have been able to achieve in terms of attention within uh, virtual reality. I mean, it's probably the only time as artists or creators or, or documentary makers where we are having our audiences without any distractions, like just forcing them into the headset in some way. And that's something that's very hard to get these days. Really, really difficult. Um, and we treasure that. And I think the, the, the impact of that is also something that is noticeable. People are affected uh, when they are paying undivided attention to the stories that you're telling. Mm. It's interesting. I had never thought of it that way. I always think about technology as this distraction right? That's making me look everywhere all at once. And, but you've just reminded me that VR is a way of having tech focus, that it's actually a technology that focuses our attention and shuts everything else out. So I want to talk now about the new project that, that you've produced and congratulations. I know it won the prize for best VR piece at, at Tribeca. So congratulations for that. Can you tell us a little bit about Kasunda and, and that project and what it is? Kasunda is a voice-driven virtual reality experience about what makes a language fall asleep and what it takes to revitalize one. And we are we had the amazing opportunity to work together with the Kasunda community in Nepal. So first explain what that what that is. I'd never heard of the Kasunda community. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Kasunda people, it's it's a it's a tribe in Nepal that have, uh, who have, you know, until they call themselves the kings of the forest, because until a few generations ago, even, you know, until 40 years ago, some of them still led a traditional hunter-gatherer life in the jungles of Nepal. Today, there are, you know, about 150 people who identify as Kosunda in Nepal. And there's only a handful, two or three people who fluently speak the Kasunda language, um, their mother tongue. And uh, the Kasunda language is a special language because it's a language isolate. Uh, it's unrelated to any other language of the world. And the community uh, has been working hard to revitalize uh, their mother tongue and we had this amazing gift of being able to work together with them uh, to create this virtual reality experience that is in some ways a tribute to, to their efforts. Also meant to inspire other um, communities around the world who may be facing similar challenges. By challenges, you mean the extinction of their indigenous language. Exactly. So, you know, today we speak, I think around the world, there are six to 7,000 languages that we speak, which brings us to the point that at the turn of the century, perhaps we will only have half of those languages that, that we speak today. So I, I'm just amazed. I mean, people are aware of species extinction, but I don't think most people think as much about the extinction of languages, um, that, that we're literally losing one every two weeks because the last speaker passes away. I mean, it reminds me of, of things I've read by naturalists when they talk about the, 
the disappearance of a bird species and never hearing that bird's song again. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a little bit different, the disappearance of languages or the dormancy of languages, because, you know, a dinosaur is extinct and it may never come back, but languages that have, that have fallen asleep have been revitalized. So there are at least, you know, 20 languages in the human history that have been revitalized from being zero, Hebrew being one of them, which is which has had a great, you know, journey of revitalization. So a lot of um, activists and, you know, anthropologists are really moving away from this extinction narrative and saying that languages are different. They, they are more, it's more dormancy and it's more falling asleep. And if it can be revitalized in a, in a similar way, that a lot of biodiversity can be revitalized if we took the right measures at the right time. So, so tell me how the piece works. I mean, I, I, or tell our listeners, I had the pleasure of doing it. <laughs> so um, the piece is based around voice interaction. And by, by learning and speaking certain words, one unlocks different story worlds that either can take you to the past when the Kusunda people were still predominantly roaming around in the, in, in the forests of Nepal, you can, you can interact within the piece while, while, while speaking. And, and yeah, it's mainly focused on two protagonists. So on um, an, an older Kusunda shaman, Lil Bahadur, who, who um, spent 40 years of his life in, in the forest and, and living, living in, the, in the jungle. And his granddaughter, who, who lived in, in a village all her life, but is now learning the language, that her grandfather forgot. Just to add to this is that we met Hema, uh, who, was, who is a 15-year-old uh, teenager. Um, we met her and we completely, you know, fell in love somehow with Hema because she's just so inspiring and amazing at what, you know, she, she would say things like, I'm going to save the language or I'm going to revitalize the language. This is going to happen. It was so hopeful. So we definitely wanted to have some kind of a collaboration with her. And uh, while we were on production, uh, she this came from her actually, where she said, um, you know, can I write a song for the project? And we said, of course. And she said, ah, cool. It'll be ready in two days. And we were like, wow, okay. <laughs> and then we were very, very touched and moved when she wrote a song about her grandfather's life in her grandfather's words. Like she wrote a song for him because he didn't have the words in the language to express himself anymore. So she wrote it for him and sang it to him. Great, let's listen to it. And it kind of just brings me back again to this important message of, of why it's essential that we, that we preserve these indigenous languages. It's clearly the message of, of your piece and so beautifully brought home by making everyone who watches it speak the language. You know, I just thought that was so clever and, and um, such an important part of the experience that you created, making it not just immersive, but interactive and, and embodied. Yeah. For us, a language is a way of looking at the world. And like by having a multitude of perspectives. We understand our own perspective better. We understand the world better. And losing these perspectives and these ways, these ways of looking at the world 
is is not only a loss for um, those cultures and communities who are directly affected, but really for us as as humanity. And I just wanted to say, like you know, Lil Bahadur's connection to the world is, or the way of point of view is very different from our point of view. Is something we kept learning again and again. A small anecdote is we were flying a drone around the valley to capture the valley, right? For the for photogrammetry. And he kept calling the the drone an eagle vehicle, which makes so much more sense. And it tells us about his first connection to the world around him is nature. And how did we even come up with this concept of a drone, which is so far away? And you know, there's so much, so much that goes behind the nomenclature of things. Like, how do we name things? How do we call things? How do we view these things? And and the way he did that was different from the way we saw the world. And it also made us think about how can we build in our environment and the nature around us into our lives? Ultimately, do you feel that the, the medium and of VR and the technology that you used was, um, was the right one for telling this story, say, as opposed to just doing it in two dimensions as a traditional documentary film? Yeah, we actually um, did a study, a small study, together with the Story Lab at uh, the Anglia Ruskin University in the United Kingdom, where we have the same story that we have in virtual reality as a 2D film without interaction. And we carried out and are currently carrying out focus group discussions who, with people who view both versions of the story. So the interactive voice-driven VR experience and the 2D film. And they are both approximately the same length and they both have the same content. And we realized that when people ex are exposed to both these formats, one of them really sticks out, and that is the virtual reality experience. And one contributing factor to this, apart from all the unique affordances of virtual reality, is also the interaction and the embodiment that you have in the story like embodying the interaction by speaking certain words, then you have an actual, you have to do something with your body, with your voice and contribute to the story. And that is something I don't want to take away at all. Like, I think we, I don't want to underestimate the power of interaction and the right kind of interaction for a story, which makes it very powerful. What virtual reality affords is this, complete immersion and presence that we spoke about. And it also helps a community to archive their stories in a spatial form. So it becomes this kind of a medium like a, for spatial anthropology. And here, I think as filmmakers, as producers and creators, we have to be very aware of our roles in this space because, you know, there's so much baggage of in, in the field of visual anthropology where people have flown in from the more privileged parts of the world to the less privileged parts of the world and documented people, communities, traditions, rituals without the right kind of respect or without the right form of collaboration. I think we have to be very careful about who owns these stories. And that's something we are being 
very conscious about and we are very aware of our roles here is as messengers in this process. The ones who own the stories is the community. They are giving us the permission to tell this story or, you know, quote unquote, broadcast this story to a wider audience. And in that, there is a lot of trust and respect, mutual respect in this relationship. You started by saying that you give voice to people who didn't have it, that that was one of the original inspirations as journalists. I can't thank you enough for the work you do and are doing in terms of helping bring to our awareness the importance of, of preserving and giving voice. Thank you so much, Charles, for thank taking the time to, to speak to us. It's really um, always great to have conversations with you. We've, we've spoken like three times and all, all these times have been really a lot of amazing input. Thank you so much. And it's also very much what you do, giving, giving voice to people. So thank you <laughs> for your work there. Thanks for listening to the FOSS podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe and share it with a friend. And of course, a warm thank you to Felix and Gayatri for joining me today. You can find a full transcript of this conversation and learn more about their work by visiting the link in this episode's description. The FOSS podcast is produced by Melcher Media in collaboration with our talented production partner, Charts and Leisure. FOST also sends out a monthly newsletter that features articles, upcoming events, and original content showcasing the cutting edge of storytelling. Join the FOST community by subscribing at fost.org slash sign up. I hope we'll see you again in a couple of weeks for another deep dive into the world of storytelling. Until then, please be safe, stay strong, and story on.